0: was it something I read? This is a podcast series of everyday theology about important issues facing the church, brought to you by the Center for the Study of Bible and Violence. My name is Ashley Hibbert, and I'm a research associate at the Center for the Study of Bible and Violence.
1: I'm Kate Hayen, a campus ministry staff at Youth Unlimited YFC Stratford, and I'm a current student at Emmanuel Bible College.
2: And I'm Alex Jones. I'm a full-time pastoral ministry student at Emmanuel Bible
1: We're excited
0: for you to join us as we read, learn, and discuss books on theological issues. And then we ask, was it something I read?
1: Today, we'll be breaking down chapter 11 of Bloody, Brutal, and Barbaric. And just a heads up, we're drawing a fair bit from topics that we've already covered. So if you haven't listened to our prior episodes, we would strongly recommend going back and listening to our episodes in order so that our references to earlier topics actually make sense when we get to them. And, as always, this episode is broadly concerned with matters of violence, but we don't think that there will be anything particularly troublesome to listeners, so this is one that we would say is open to anyone.
0: This chapter of the book is an extension of the conversation about hyperbole, focusing on the story of Saul and the Amalekites in 1 Samuel chapter 15, We appreciate Webinosti's willingness to face a text that presents one of the greatest challenges to their hyperbole thesis. At first glance, the text seems to require a literal total kill understanding. But upon further examination, hyperbole is a good explanation of what's happening in this text.
2: So Webinosti start with this bird's eye view of the text, uh, which is the level where we are likely to view God's commands as requiring literal total kill. So at the beginning of 1 Samuel 15, God instructs Saul that he is to completely kill all the Amalekites and their animals. So I'm just going to read uh, 1 Samuel 15 in its entirety because hopefully that will bring a little bit of clarity as we talk through this. So starting in verse 1, uh, Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. So Saul summoned the men and mustered them at Telaim. 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 from Judah. Saul went to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the ravine. Then he said to the Kenites, Go away, leave the Amalekites, so that I do not destroy you along with them. For you showed kindness to all the Israelites when they came out of Egypt. So the Kenites moved away from the Amalekites. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way down from Havilah to Shur, near the eastern border of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul said, uh, and the army spared Agag, and the best of the sheep and cattle, and the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak they totally destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry, and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul. But he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he set up a monument in his own honor and turned and has turned and gone down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and the cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and bu- but we totally destroyed the rest. Enough, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites, wage war against them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission to the Lord. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best, of what, uh, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the men, and so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. As Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught hold of them. Uh, as Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe and tore it. Samuel said to him, "The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a human being that he should change his mind." Saul replied, I have sinned, but please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back with Saul and Saul worshiped the Lord. Then Samuel said, bring me Agag, king of the Amalekites. Agag came to, came to him in chains and he thought, surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, as, the, as your sword has made women childless, so will your mother be childless among women. And Samuel put Agag to death before the Lord at Gilgal. Then Samuel left for Ramah, but Saul went to his home in Gibeah of Saul. Until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel.
1: So in this chapter, Saul is seriously rebuked for his disobedience presumably because he left one person alive. And that interpretation would be fine. I mean, that's what most people think when they first read the chapter, except for the significance of who that person is, the Amalekite king. The narrator of Samuel confirms that Saul was obedient, except for the fact that he didn't kill the Amalekite king, and that one exception is enough to condemn Saul for his disobedience. At first reading... It seems like the total kill commands would have been totally fulfilled if Saul had just killed the king, right? Especially because Samuel is forced to finish the job that Saul didn't complete in his disobedience. According to Old Testament battle patterns, Saul should have killed the king, hung his dead body outside the defeated city for a day, and then buried him there. And the Amalekite king never should have been brought back with Saul, whether he was dead or alive.
0: This brings us to a point where the authors uh, bring up a topic that we discussed in the last episode, the fact that kings needed to legitimize their power. A king's power was considered a god's given right in the ancient Near East, but if his people didn't affirm it, it wasn't worth the stone it was chiseled on. (laughs) Kings were expected to act in ways that both honored their gods and benefited the people. There was... Almost an element of performance, shows were made out of captured enemies, especially kings. You take their stuff, have a barbecue that honors the gods, and feeds the troops. In most nations, that's all the same thing. But in Israel, God's expectations didn't always result in public acclaim for the king.
1: And that's something that I found really interesting. This isn't just for leaders. This is applicable to Christians in their everyday lives. What God calls us to will not always make us look good, but obedience is more important to Him than appearances.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And we'll circle back to this later on because we think it warrants a much more in-depth conversation, and we don't want to get sidetracked just yet. So we're just going to kind of circle back around here.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks for hanging in with us as we read through that whole chapter. But in Samuel, first fifteen. But in 1 Samuel 15, Saul is trying to stay legitimate as the ruler of Israel. Uh, really, bringing the Amalekite king back with him was prideful, but culturally understandable uh, way of doing so. It, but it takes control and glory away from God. So we, the readers, are watching you know, quite this scene unfold. It's like a parent who says to their child, unload the dishwasher before I get home. The child instead dusts, you know, dusts everything, sweeps, mops the floor, and even cleans the oven, but leaves the dishwasher. <laughs> it's not that the other chores are invalid or you know worth less, but obedience is the key issue that is missing.
0: Hyperbole is often used in ancient Near Eastern texts to make the king look better, as we've discussed, but it's fascinating. And we really have Kate to thank for this point, that in this text, hyperbole highlights Saul's failures, not his greatness. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, Webb and Hostie flesh out the evidence of hyperbole in this text, and they have done a tremendous amount of work to defend their case. We summarized the types of hyperbole in detail in episode six, and we would encourage you to listen again if you want a refresher. That's just the episode before this one. Mm -hmm but we are going to start with one of the simplest examples of hyperbole concerning the text of 1 Samuel 15. Only a few years after Saul destroys the Amalekites, the home base of David's merry men is raided by Amalekites. And they basically clean house, and you can find that story in 1 Samuel chapter 30. It's no small feat for a group of people to carry off the wives of a band of mercenaries, along with a lot of plunder, and then torch the town. Basically, a plain reading of scripture tells us that there are plenty of Amalekites left after Saul kills, quote, all of them.
2: Okay, so then let's break down some more of the evidence for hyperbole in 1 Samuel 15. So, first of all, the geographical scope of the battle seems unreasonably large. Uh, in 1 Samuel 15, verse 7, Uh, It says that Israel destroyed the Amalekites from Havilah to Shur. That would be a modern day span of Saudi Arabia all the way to Egypt. So to state the obvious here, the scope is totally unrealistic for a single battle. The Amalekites were also a nomadic people. So it's more likely that when it says Havilah to Shur, it's just a general reference for the territory that they typically occupied, sort of where they hung around.
0: It isn't just the geographical scope that's unreasonably large. An army of 210,000 men is a preposterously large army for Saul to have. Uh, this is numeric hyperbole. Uh, the numbers are either exaggerated um, or maybe misunderstood. Um, so if Saul's army was actually this big, it would have been, uh, as Webb say, uh, page 207 if you've got a book, Larger than any army known at this time in antiquity. This isn't a minor rounding-up kind of thing. About 150 years later, there was a monumentally large battle in the ancient Near East called the Battle of Karkar. That battle is believed to have had roughly 55,000 troops on the one side against about 35,000, a total of 90,000 soldiers. For Saul to have had more than twice that number on his side alone... Is simply unreasonable.
2: Yeah.
0: Um. There, there's also the issue, and this is where it may be more misunderstanding mm. than than hyperbole. Uh, there's also the issue of determining actual numbers from ancient numerical systems, which are a mess. If you learned Roman numerals in school, <laughs> like you might remember, yeah. what an awkward system that was. And that's yeah. kind of all ancient numbers.
2: You got to take your shoes off to count past. Uh... <laughs> Fifteen, <laughs>
0: right. and and so there's there's this word that that we tend to translate thousand. That's that's lf, um, but when counting people, lf probably doesn't usually mean thousand, and probably means troop size, something like something like a modern squadron, perhaps, um, and. And so possibly what this could indicate is not that that they're hyperbolically stating that Saul had 200,000 soldiers from Israel and 10,000 from Judah. Those are just unreasonably astronomical numbers. But possibly that Saul had gathered 200 fighting units, 200 squadrons from Israel and 10 from Judah. Which could well be more realistic since that could end up being an army of maybe just over 2000 soldiers.
2: And so it's I guess another way to think about that is it's not it's not that the biblical author is intending to deceive but there's a you know s- some minor translation nuances that we don't necessarily totally understand or you mm-hmm. know just the, the the mess of you know this amount of time
0: yeah, yeah. Certainly, the biblical author isn't trying to be deceptive. Mm-hmm. Either he is actually trying for a level of accuracy, and we're the ones who are mistranslating. Yeah,
2: because we are the weird ones coming to scripture. <laughs> like, like we're the foreigners, right?
0: Well, well put. Yeah. Get ourselves inside their culture. Yeah. Um, or, or maybe it is just hyperbole.
2: Yeah, they. I mean, Webinosti suggests that the author of First Samuel is trying to show the reader, the original reader, that Saul's army was so big, he had absolutely no reason and certainly no excuse to disobey God's command. This is kind of helpful because it shows the purposefulness of hyperbole. These aren't just big numbers for the sake of sounding impressive or deceiving. They're trying to really drive home a point. And remember, we always use hyperbole in our (laughs) day-to-day life. So, you know, that kind of makes sense.
1: And hyperbole isn't the only way that the author communicates Saul's disobedience and inadequacy in this passage. So one of the principles of reading story in scripture is that the authors don't necessarily condone what they are reporting, right? Mm. So they might be recording what happened, but they are not saying, hey, this is great. We totally agree with this. Sometimes the author implies their own opinion about the story when they write it, which is really interesting when you're reading through scripture. And what we're meant to pick up on in this passage in 1 Samuel chapter 15 is really important. So the biblical text isn't explicit about Saul's motives, but as we mentioned, the author might imply things. And it certainly provides enough evidence that we can make a good guess as to what Saul's motives were. As Webb and Oste state, Saul's actions are, quote, symptomatic of the larger problem lying at the root of his actions his pride and self-glorification. Web say that Saul is repeatedly ineffective as a military leader because he does not obey God. But in reading the texts that they list as examples, we've noticed that those examples of ineffectiveness that they point to are not so much about his military failures, but his spiritual failures. Things like offering a sacrifice without authorization, which we see in 1 Samuel 13 verses 8 to 14. Then there's the repeated disobedience that we see here in 1 Samuel 15, where things come to a head in verse 23. Perhaps Lebedos' point is made better in 1 Samuel 14, verses 24 to 30, where Saul's rash vow deprives his soldiers of much-needed food. I think everyone can understand why that is a foolish choice. (laughs) Um, Really, for someone who so often disobeys God... And in chapter 15, we find it's to the point that he loses God's favor. Saul is surprisingly a pretty effective military leader. And he's adequately successful by the world's standards. It's just that he's unfaithful and disobedient and doesn't meet God's standard.
2: Mm -hmm. Isn't that picture of uh, Saul grasping for Samuel's robe and tearing it? Especially powerful when we think of uh, losing God's favor. Saul doesn't just fall short of the expectations for an Israelite king. He actually stoops all the way down to the world standard for rulers. Uh, Think back to our discussion uh, from the last episode about a ruler's legitimacy. Saul's actions in 1 Samuel 15 are like his desperate attempts to maintain credibility in his subject's eyes. You can see it in the way he waffles when uh, Samuel calls him out. Yeah. Saul's legitimacy as a king was already in jeopardy because of his previous actions. Uh, Like Kate just mentioned in 1 Samuel 13. Uh, He was primed to make a mistake like this because he was pursuing his own desires, Mm -hmm. not God's. Mm -hmm. Ironically, the actions that he hoped would make him too legit to quit meant (laughs) that the actual source of his true legitimacy was now completely lost.
1: Yeah, kind of ironic. Oh yeah, oh, Iro- said ironically.
2: ironically, it was ironic <laughs> that in in pursuing <laughs> his own will, Saul, yeah.
1: Sorry, we're gonna cut
2: that out. That no, we're not. <laughs> 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 we're that. No, but it's true, right? Like we 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 see that in our lives today. Like if we forsake God's will because we think we can take it upon ourselves and and do everything our our own way, ultimately. It's going to fail. Ultimately, we've lost. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah.
0: And and Saul just keeps going. (laughs) He sure does. Yeah. (laughs) He He keeps digging that hole. Yeah. Yeah. He takes the the Amalekite king Agag and the animals as part of a self-aggrandizing post-victory celebration. Like, here's to me. Yeah. Uh, And there's (laughs) several parts to this. He builds a monument to himself on a high mountain... He takes the plunder to distribute among his troops and look like the cool king. Mm-hmm. Um, it's important to note uh, that he says the animals are also intended as an offering to God. What, what some readers might not realize is that the type of offering he intends is actually very self-serving.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Most of the meat would be given back to the person offering the sacrifice. This is what we would call a fellowship offering in Leviticus. Um mm. uh, and and then he'd get to distribute it among his men. He's hosting an ancient holy barbecue, <laughs> um, and and so we we want to note that leaving animals physically alive wasn't actually the problem. Taking a malachite stuff was the problem mm-hmm. because it was disobedient and it was selfish. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. we've already talked about how ancient kings didn't just need the divine right to rule in a high-level sort of way, but they also needed the approval of their people in a day-to-day way, particularly the approval of their army. They're the ones with the swords. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And one of the things that we kind of discussed as we were putting this episode together was um, how this seems to highlight tension So um, I actually think the author of Samuel is trying to remind the readers of the constant tension that's created because Israel demanded a human king instead of God. God was their king first, and the human king had to be able to submit to God's rule, not just do his own thing. The requirements are listed off in Deuteronomy 17, verse 14 to 20, and they are really clear that even once Israel has a king... That king still has to think of his people as brothers, not like, hey, I'm the head, I'm the cool guy, like, follow me, everybody, I tell you what to do. I say jump, you say how high. The king is supposed to be most concerned about a humble posture toward God and carrying out his law. He's got to be like a very much a servant leader, like Mm -hmm. we see Jesus do in the New Testament. And human ideas of what kingship looks like And in my opinion, maybe in our opinion, what any leadership looks like will always lead to excesses and abuses. And what came to mind when we were discussing this was Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 to 11, where Isaiah writes, "'For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways,' says the Lord. "'For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts.'" For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there until they have watered the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So that just kind of struck me as an excellent reminder of. God's ways are better than our ways. And this is a perfect example, right? We, I mean, we, we. <laughs> Israel wanted a king. People want a king. They want somebody they can see and be like, hey, he's cool, he's awesome, look, he's so rich, he's our king. Um, yeah, our desire, for,
0: our desire for leadership is both understandable and arguably hardwired. One of the things mm-hmm. that's hardwired to point us to the fact that each one of us is not kind of the be all and end all, right? Mm-hmm. But <laughs> it's interesting. I was talking with a with a dear friend of mine who's who's in some serious positions of power, authority, responsibility, a, a certain amount of acclaim. And she said that for her, one of the one of the biggest days of the year, one of her biggest spiritual experiences of the year, is always Ash Wednesday. Mm-hmm. And she goes to an ashing service. It's not even part of her own spiritual tradition, but she'll she'll find a church that does an ashing service and go to it because she she said I'm in a position where so many people say so many nice things to me, that to have someone place ashes on my forehead and say, "Repent of your sins and turn to Christ. Dust you are, and to dust you shall return," mm-hmm. is an incredibly important reset for her. And I, I wonder, I wonder how much, how much of our leadership would look healthier mm. if it had that as its as its guiding principle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and we'll get into a bit of that in the next episode. For the moment, we'd encourage you to to take the next couple weeks and and maybe maybe do a bit of a deep dive mm-hmm. on this on this text. It's it's a really fruitful one. Um, we've sure found it to be a fruitful one in mm-hmm. many different regards, both of biblical study and modern application. And so we look forward to sharing with you then some of what we've thought. So so come join us in the conversation uh, as we keep asking. Was, was it something, something I, that I read? read.
2: Wonderful.